Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and I'm very excited for today's episode. Joining us on the other side of the mic is the Chief Legal Officer at Polygon Labs, Rebecca Redding. Thanks so much for taking the time to join the show. Uh, it's been it's been a while since I, first, I last saw you at, uh, what was it, we were taking that 4 a.m. flight from New York to Austin for consensus? Well, I guess, you know, a fun place to start, Rebecca, um, because you've held so many roles across the space um, in, in a legal capacity. So you, you sort of have your, you have a sense of what's going on, uh, no doubt about it. But what does the day in the life look like for you these past few years? I think there are two pieces to it. One is the legal side, which is like what's happening day to day. And I think a lot of what day to day looks like is what are the products that are being built by your, when you're in-house, your clients, right? The devs and all the product people and really focusing on product and are there legal implications by what's being, or regulatory implications by what's being built and how to think about those. And that's my day to day now. And it's been my day to day for a long time once I left private practice and even when I was in private practice. Um, And then there's the policy side of things, which is what you're talking about which is what's happening coming out of the regulators, not just in the United States, but all around the world. And how do we have to think about it? And then also like, what should we be anticipating? And, you know, what's the meaning of all of this? I do feel like these days we are in a very different spot than we have been for years. I will say for most of the lawyers in this space, we've all known something pretty, I don't know, seismic was coming um, in terms of how we have to deal with regulation. I think the events of the end of 2022 really expedited how significant that would be. Um, But it really only expedited it in the U.S. in terms of ratcheting up the heat. Things were continuing on around the globe as we expected. And so I think this is an interesting time because even if the heat feels hotter um, or, you know, the temperature has been turned up a bit, um, I don't feel like we're in the same type of um, desperate bear that we've been in in the past. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I totally agree with you. It's, I mentioned this in my newsletter the other day that it is, it is the weirdest um, bull bear market that I've experienced in as, in as much as it just feels like there's a shoe that has yet to be dropped, whether it's uh, DOJ action against a Binance or, or something going on with Tron or something going on with, um, uh, you know, some, you know, tether. All, tether exactly. And so there's a lot of nerves, there's a lot of uncertainty yet at the same time, I mean, price isn't that bad. Well, you're in a bear market where PayPal announces that they're launching a stable coin. You know what I mean? Right after a bipartisan passage out of um, the house financial services committee of the stable coin bill, like that doesn't like, if you just said that in isolation, that doesn't sound like a bear market vibe. Um, and the other thing I'll say is, sentiment around the world is mixed, right? Like you have Europe, which is, I do think that they understand how important all sorts of digitization and the way that our digital life is moving forward is the future of the economy. Um, I did a workshop in the EU in at the end of June and some policymakers there literally said it, like this is the future of our economy. Uh, and you have international regulators, obviously, who are focused on things like AML and worried about this concept of cryptoization, which is like, will crypto replace fiat currency? Obviously, that's sort of not the 
the point anymore, what we've all been talking about anymore. Um, or you have like Japan that has great rules or the UK who's really trying to make uh, a very comprehensive set of regulations. So that vibe is different than a lot of what people have been feeling, at least coming out of some of the regulatory agencies in the United States. So I do think it, we're in this like very ambiguous bull bear. And maybe this is just the fe- like, this is what it feels like moving into the future. You haven't really seen like a with a withdrawal of of counterparties, whether it's, I mean, whether it's the DOJ leveraging Coinbase's platform to offload its Bitcoin, or public companies like MicroStrategy selling and or rather buying, excuse me, forgive me, Mister Sailor, uh, Bitcoin vis-a-vis Coinbase, or um, just looking at um, the most recent earnings out of Galaxy, right? You have their number of onboarded counterparties increasing uh, in Q2. Unclear what Q3 looks like, but I'd imagine that pace accelerated to a degree. So, uh, do you do you reckon that um, do you reckon that firms at Larry Fink, obviously BlackRock, uh, submitting mm-hmm. a filing for a Bitcoin ETF with lots of filings coming off of it too, right? Like he wasn't alone. Are market participants, in your view, desensitized to uh, maybe the regulatory environment here in the U.S., or is that a is that hopium from my perspective? Desensitized may be a strong word, but you know there was this period in early 2022 where we all said, "Oh, mass adoption really requires one regulatory clarity and two, then all the institutions will come in." But I think that many of the financial institutions are seeing that there is either clarity or some form of hope, as you said, in the rest of the world. And so we're just going to move forward because this isn't going to stop everywhere else. And so I think U.S. companies don't want to be left behind as the rest of the world goes ahead, right? There's this statistic um, that Patty Hansen from Circle tweeted out uh, after Mika that uh, investment in EU-based uh, blockchain companies went up something like 25 or 30% after the passage of Mika. And so I think people understand what, what that really means. So I don't think institutions here want to get left behind. Mm, that's a good point. So like basically what you're saying is there's really only more room for upside to a degree with additional regulatory clarity here in the States versus sort of, we, we can't, we can't sort of, again, not to use another cliche, uh, uh, but we can't, uh, it can't get much worse. About that, but I do. When you were talking about all the things, I don't. I don't like to make predictions because how can it get more worse? What I was going to say with all the things you were talking about, like is a DOJ going to action going to drop against finance? Will something happen with Tron? Like, I wonder if a lot of that's been priced in to the market because people have been talking about it and obsessing about it for a long time. I do think after even the SEC actions against Binance and Coinbase dropped, you know, so near in together, there was like a minute of market constriction, and then everybody sort of went back to day to day. And so, what I was going to say about this question. Like, I think some people see this as like the cost of doing business in this area, at least for the foreseeable future. So, Rebecca, to, to play a bit of devil's advocate and to maybe put my turbo bull hat off for a second, um, and, to, and to, your, to your point, which I think is salient, I was speaking with a redacted firm today, and they're one of those institutional types that, you know, they're sticking with Bitcoin and, and ETH because they are worried about um the regulatory outcome of of these suits against exchanges i mean how long how long can people sort of sit on the proverbial sidelines with something like that i mean if this case takes three years to play out does what does that mean for projects like a polygon like where if they're worried about matic being a security i mean uh, are they just gonna are they gonna ignore that innovation you know viewing it as innovation 
for five years. I mean, that just seems, it seems like a recipe for, uh, you know, it seems like a recipe for being safe, but at the same time, a recipe for being, um, uh, not to be pejorative, but have your head stuck in the sand. I'll give the lawyer answer. It depends, but it really depends what type of company you are and what your risk appetite is. Right. So, um, you know, if you're JP Morgan, you're going to be taking a very different approach than if you're, I don't know, a, a brand company launching a consumer loyalty program or some cool app that can be used in a video game or something like that, right? Where the stakes are just lower and up from a regulatory perspective. I don't think anybody is really slowing down right now. And I don't think, to your point, we won't know things for the next three to five years. I mean, the passage of the Fit for the 21st Century Act out of both the House Financial Services Committee and the House Ag Committee from a bipartisan perspective is pretty monumental just from a conceptual standpoint. Yeah. But I don't know if it gets to the Senate and president Biden signs it. Totally. There are lots and lots of hurdles. I'm not saying this will pass and we'll all be done and we can like, you know, um, but I don't, I think that <laughs> go back to Austin, <laughs> yeah, go back to Austin would be great. We'll just hang out there for a while. But, um, look, there's a lot more work to be done in DC. And another part of my job here is to work on policy from a global perspective. So I, I do not have my head in the sand to use your term. Um, so I know there's a lot of work to still be done, but my point is like, there is a lot of movement going on and agreed that there may be an uphill battle um, in the U.S., but I, I don't think we're in the same place we were five years ago where nobody was even listening or paying attention to what this technology is and what could do. And I've talked about this a lot, but we've focused so much on you know what's happening in the HFSC and the AG, but the House Energy Committee had a great hearing in June about blockchain um, and what it can be used for all outside of financial use cases. Uh, and they're really pushing forward too. So I think that there's movement in a way in the US that there hasn't been in the past, but agreed, you're, you're not going to have regulatory clarity in the next six months. Regulatory clarity in, in air quotes, of course. <laughs> um, so you joined Polygon Labs back in January. And then, uh, I mean, it was a few months into the, into the job uh, where the SEC referred to Polygon as one example of an unregistered security traded by Coinbase and Binance. Question one, what was your reaction? Did you have low blood pressure in that instance? And then two, um, what do you make of sort of the 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 almost seemingly uh, random uh, potpourri of of coins in in that sort of in that sort of suit? You know, I've been in the space for a long time. There's a lot of cost of doing business. Uh, I I always joke with other lawyers in the space that we must have really high like stress uh, tester mechanisms. Maybe we all exist with higher levels of cortisol. And so many things don't sort of affect us in as, in as major of a way. Um, obviously, there was a lot to think about. We disagree with the categorization. It was against a third party. It wasn't against, um, you know, any Polygon entity. Uh, and I thought the allegations were not particularly comprehensive as to Matic with respect. To, and, and Matic is a gas token. It is being used. Uh, it's, it's used within the network work. Uh, and it just is, is very different. Um, I think the other thing I'll say about the potpourri of tokens, as you call them, 
is that I think it was an intentional, in my view, an intentional way to try to constrict the industry because so much was layer one and layer two tokens. And I think that there was at least potential thought, this is pure speculation, of course, by the SEC, that um, people would stop using these tokens as gas. And so these networks would stop moving forward or something. There would be lack of validators or something like that. So, I, you know, maybe that was the point, but... I, I don't know. And what's the outcome? Do you anticipate if if sort of judge rules in favor? Uh, does that mean? I mean, I guess they just can't trade stateside, but doesn't make it a. It doesn't sort of impact the usage there of it, right? I mean, we are so far from anything even remotely resembling a judgment from a federal district judge on this, um, on any of the questions presented. Um, The Binance case, let's put to the side, that's moving at a very different pace. The Coinbase case, they took a very, very um, novel approach by filing an answer and responding completely to the SEC's allegations. Frequently, you can file something called a motion to dismiss and say, oh, these allegations don't even reach to the level judge where you could, you know, say this this states a claim. And they said, no, fine, you stated a claim. Here are all of our responses. And by the way, now you see these two pleadings. You couldn't possibly go forward, judge, with this case. Very, very novel. Um, So we'll see what happens. We're still in the briefing schedule for that. We've only seen Coinbase's brief. The SEC will respond you know, in a couple of weeks, and then Coinbase will have a chance uh, to come back. And the judge also is going to allow amicus briefs. So I'm sure the industry will have a lot to say because the Coinbase case is very high profile. But I think we're very, very far out from seeing anything in terms of, you know, like a ripple summary judgment decision on any of the token allegations in the case. I mean, there will have, if it goes forward at all, there will have to be discovery and lots of briefing. And um, so I don't anticipate anything, you know, coming very soon in terms of something akin to Ripple. What do you make of the Ripple case itself? I think it comports with a lot of what we saw in the Coinbase motion um, for judgment on the pleadings too, um, that we have to really get into where are we on this idea of an investment contract? Does there and and this concept of secondary trading? Right, the industry has said this is so different for so long. These assets don't look like securities; they're not investment contracts. And you know, I think what both Ripple and the Coinbase motion to for judgment on the pleadings is really trying to say is like we got to bring it back to the law. Like this may look like something, but it doesn't look like anything you've seen before. So we can't import these other ideas where. An investment contract means there's some implied contract. Um, and does it exist between myself uh, and you know some token issuer or not? Uh, and so it's really trying to bring it back to the law. I think the other thing uh, about Ripple, and, and so Ripple says, no, you, it implies that you need to have a contract. And people have said to me, like, well, what about you know having secondary trading for equities? And I'm like, yeah, but when you tr- have a secondary market for equities, there's something in the stock itself that says you have a claim against the company. So even if I buy you know an equity on the secondary, market, it does, you know, filter back to the company. As- digital assets being sold in the secondary market don't have that. And you're not getting a share or revenue from the company, no dividends, things like that. So it's pretty different. And that's probably why we had that sort of split judgment because of that, that sort of difference in 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 in, in nature of, of, of the asset itself. Well, the asset is the same. It's the contractual arrangements around the asset, right? Yeah. Of, around how you got the asset. Yeah. Or acquired it, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. What they're saying in Ripple, and they said in Coinbase, and um, there have been a number of legal articles about this too, which is like, 
Token's a piece of software. If you wrap it in contractual arrangements, it may look like part of an investment contract. But if you don't wrap it with those promises, then maybe not. And that's why I do think as a lawyer um, looking at the space, how devcos and others talk about the technology digital assets. I mean, that's kind of fair, isn't it, though? I mean, that's what the law, you know, if you go all the way back, really talks about. I thought it was very interesting in the Coinbase brief. They cited they cited the SEC's brief in Howie um, from like 1940-something. Um, and, um, and it was really going back to this idea of a contractual arrangement. So... It is. It makes sense from that perspective. What What do you think? What do you anticipate will uh, transpire on that front? If you were to bring your crystal ball out in front of you, you know that was the same type of phrase I was going to use too. I would be surprised if the judge lets the entire case go on a motion for judgment on the pleadings. The standard is very high. Coinbase did an excellent job. Um, but I, I do. And the other thing that's very interesting is one of the early hearings, um, the judge that it's in front of um, uh, expressed a lot of skepticism about the SEC's case because she said to the SEC, didn't you guys let this S1 go through and allow them to IPO? Like, Oh, wow. So they, she did bring that up because the, the, the flip side of that argument is, well, you know, we're not real. I think, I think the flip side of that argument and correct me if I'm wrong, because you're order of magnitude more educated on the matter than I am. But um, the, the sort of counter to that was there was risk disclosures within Coinbase's S1 that said something to the effect that like some of the tokens that we do list could be deemed securities at some point in the future. So yes, but right now, but, the SEC, yes, maybe they have their disclosures about that. But I think there are a couple of different points on this. They're not just alleging that, you know, they might be deemed securities. They're alleging that they are an unregistered securities exchange, an unregistered broker, an unregistered clearing agent. Um, and those are huge allegations. And I think Coinbase and the SEC's response to that is, well, judge, when we, you know, let an S1 go forward, we're not saying this is a legal business. And look, if you're a telecom company and the SEC approves your S1, yeah, they probably can't say whether it's a legal business or not because that's not their jurisdiction, right? Like that's the FTC or something like that. Um, oh, interesting. Okay, okay. Right, like, you know, or if you're a drug company going for and and you're allowed to go public, the FDA, whatever, whatever it may be. But like the SEC says this is their jurisdiction, Right. They're the regulators. And so if you let it go forward and this is you are the primary regulator, then you were giving it some imprimatur of legality, at least at the time. Sure. Fair, fair enough. And so what was the rebuttal uh, of the SEC to that point? I don't know if there was necessarily one, but they didn't go back and forth on it with the judge during the time. Um, but they just said, like, judge, we weren't saying it was legal then. And we're sort of taking issue with this. And the judge had like a page long colloquy saying, like, sorry, I have a lot of skepticism around this. One question that I've 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 had and I wish I had thought of it when we had um Paul Graywell on the show is uh, Coinbase makes this claim that it has never uh, it has never listed a security or doesn't list securities. I think is the exact phrasing that they use. And at the same time, they say um, that they don't have regulatory clarity as to what a security is. And I don't I don't think enough people realize that those those two claims almost contradict themselves in a, in a sense. Because how can you have 
how can you know that you don't list any securities if you don't have clarity of, uh, on, on what a security or crypto security looks like? And I'm not trying to be cheeky. I'm gen, I'm gen, I, I, I wish I could ask them, uh, could have asked them this question because it is, it is interesting. Um, and, and not to sort of, um, make you answer it for them, but I, I'm just curious what you think of sort of the, the posit there. Yeah. I mean, I can't answer for what Paul would say. And, you know, he was a federal magistrate judge. So has seen a lot come through. He's like, legit. <laughs> so he may answer in a much better way than I do. But my, my argument in response would be, um, we, we Coinbase, um, don't list securities under the law as we understand it today. The SEC mm. seems to be moving the ball as to what the law is. And so, because we don't understand where the ball is right now, we don't have regulatory clarity about what may be different. It, it doesn't seem like they're gonna they're gonna budge on on listings or or anything of that of that sort, and you know probably will continue to list. I I, I suspect um, more coins. Um, they seem to be. It's it's almost like they're that they'll go the full way on this. Like they're certainly not going to settle. They're certainly keen to to make the push, um, to sort of defend, defend their business there. Now on, on the other side, like how much, um, I mean, my sense within Coinbase, because I have better look into that firm than I do the U S securities and exchange commission, to what extent do you think that their super result to sort of go the distance and, and, you know, I, I don't think they go into cases to, to lose them as, as most don't, but do you think that they had sort of the same rigor and tenacity? It's, it's a speculative question, but just wondering what your thoughts are. So two pieces to it. I agree they don't go into cases that they're going to lose. And there's actually rules in federal court that you have to have a good faith basis for bringing any claim that you bring. And otherwise, you'll be sanctioned. So presumably, yeah. the SEC believes they can't you know, <laughs> meet those rules. Um, so that's one. Two, although interestingly, like as a corollary to that, you know, Chair Gensler had a statement a little while back where he said, if we're not losing some cases we're not bringing enough cases um and so not testing the law enough but this goes to your prior question which was like you know is the ball being moved as to what we are actually aiming towards here um so i think that's sort of an interesting piece and i hadn't really heard any other i mean chair gensler isn't a lawyer but i haven't heard another you know chair of a regulatory agency or somebody who's involved day-to-day -day in litigation saying like well you know we just have to do a lot of these tests to see what happens um uh, precisely because of this really important concept that you have to have a good faith basis for bringing the claims that you bring but I'm sure the SEC enforcement lawyers who are bringing them understand those rules. And I think the SEC is really dedicated to all of these cases that they've brought recently. Um, and, you know, they're looking for more appropriations from Congress for enforcement and the like. So I think they're here for it. So looking at um, sort of within your your home um, at Polygon, what, what's exciting you right now? What What's sort of some oh. of your priorities? Um, honestly, the most exciting thing that Polygon Labs is working on and that as the legal team we get to work on is Polygon 2.0, which is this new vision for bringing all of these chains together. Um, you know, we um, Polygon Labs created the proof of stake network, which is permissionless and um, ZK EVM that is out there. And they are developing lots of new types of, you know, ZK enabled technology. And so trying to find a way to unify those, which is what Polygon 2.0 does and allows the community to have all sorts of different parts um, and participation in the network, not just as validators, but as sequencers and optimizers and things like that. It, I think it really is a thing that is going to push this space forward. Um, 
So I think that's the most exciting thing and really challenging and fun to work on. And everybody is really energized by that. And then the other thing that um, I think really works hand in hand with Polygon Labs and the way we've seen the organic growth on the top of the Polygon network is that everything there is not just a financial use case anymore, right? It's a lot of what we've been talking about, these non-financial use cases. And in my policy work, a lot of what I've seen is people saying like, what is this technology good for? Like, what are we... um, Absolutely nothing. You know, and so we created something called the Value Prop that is uh, at thevalueprop.io, which is an interactive website that aggregates you know, over 400 different applications and tons of use cases that have actually been built out already, right? It's not, we don't only have financial use cases out there. We have tons, whether it be consumer application or gaming or land registries, governments are using them, like the California DMVs, um, creating some sort of blockchain-based database and things like that. So I think that's really important and something that we're really passionate about. That sounds, that sounds big. it's cool. And it's, I've lost my driver's license, so I need I got to call up the Florida DMV. Yeah. I'm not looking yeah. forward to it. If that was all on chain. I imagine it would be, it'd be it simpler. Would be but maybe the DMV would rug me with some meme. Well, coin or one hopes not. I mean, the DMV. You never know what happens there. But I do think, even thinking about sort of you know sitting in line at the DMV and waiting for a long time and getting your picture and stuff like that. If if a DMV is sort of figuring out how to use blockchain enabled technology, we're really moving here. And this goes back to what you were saying about the major questions doctrine. Is crypto really that important? I mean. If you think about the market cap, honestly, it's small right now compared to the rest of the economy. But the level of um, interest, and I think that's putting it very mildly, by governments all around the world belies sort of how important it is. And I'm not sure that's really been impressed here. But if you have almost every regulator, both from a local level, national level, and international level, really focusing on this technology and on crypto, I think that's really underscores just how important it's going to be moving forward, notwithstanding the size of the market cap. So what what sort of goes into the consideration of, rather, the, what, what does the value prop look at when analyzing a blockchain project? How does it figure out if project is, you know, how does it separate the wheat from the shaft, as it were? A couple of different things. So the nice thing about the value prop is that it's chain agnostic. So you can find, you know, projects that have been deployed on Bitcoin, Ethereum, Polygon, Solana, Celo, Stellar, um, XRP Ledger. So I think that uh, is really important, which is like it's anywhere that's out there. Um, I think the other piece to it is like, is this project legitimate? Does it have a real website? Does it have, you know, are you able to identify a real company that's either created it or things like that? And then are you able to detect that there are legitimate users um, and a legitimate use case for it? So, um, you know, some of this is, can't really put it through true science, um, but we do really vet them heavily and look at the background, look at press on them, um, look at what else we can find publicly. Um, there is a submission form uh, that's publicly available for people to send that in. After we first launched it, we got something like 150 submissions of other applications. So people obviously, to your point, they're like, oh, that sounds valuable. Um, I think people do see the value in this. And we've heard from international regulatory agencies and um, other, you know, policymakers around the world that this has actually been useful for them to be able to look and search and find interesting 
um, apps that are out there. And we are also just going to continue to cultivate it. So it's not just going to remain an interactive database alone, but we're going to start putting videos on there, both from users of blockchain applications who can explain. Um, We have some exciting announcements coming up uh, with another um, foundation that actually donated videos from people who've been using blockchain applications to us. And they've gone out, they went out on their own and got the videos and um, uh, we will be putting them up on the website. So I think there's a lot that's coming that'll really highlight just how much there is already use for this technology, both in the financial world and outside. That's fantastic. Well, Rebecca, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, any any closing thoughts that you want to share with our listeners uh, about some of the work you're doing um, and maybe some other uh, arenas of the space about what you're excited Yeah, I think the thing I do want to share is even if it feels uncertain right now, like I do think we're going to push forward and move into the future. Um, Who knows what we'll look like five to 10 years from now, but I don't think the industry is going away. I think um, people globally really understand that. And I think people are going to keep building, notwithstanding some of the uncertainty we're seeing in the space right now. So I sort of want to end on a message of hopium, as you said earlier. The world's a big place, Becca. That's sort of the bottom line there. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining the show, the program, and, and sharing your expertise. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Of course. And The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have a nice have a nice day. I don't know why I said that in an almost Australian accent. Have an nice day. <laughs> have a nice day. <laughs>